1: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of Podcasts. I am Stephen Hausman. I'm an assistant professor in the history department at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota, and I am your host for this interview. And I'm very excited to be speaking with Robert Michael Morrissey. Dr. Morrissey is professor of history and LAS Distinguished Professorial Scholar at the University of Illinois, and is the author of the new book, People of the Echo-Tone, Environment and Indigenous Power at the Center of Early America, which came out with the University of Washington Press in 2022, and I'm very pleased to say in 2023, won the Hal Rothman Prize from the Western History Association. Welcome to the New Books Network, Bob. Good to have you here, and congratulations. Yeah, hey, thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Steve. Uh, why don't we begin as we always do here on the New Books Network by just hearing a little bit about you and who you are? I'm really interested in what your background is, and especially how you became interested in history. Okay, yeah. Well, thanks. I I am uh, so I am a, a Midwesterner. I
0: grew up outside of Chicago, and um, and I have written uh, now for 20 years, mostly about this region uh, and and some points. Further west, but uh, I, I kind of identify myself as a uh, historian interested in the American West, the American frontier, environment, indigenous history. Um, my how my background plays into that. I mean, I, I have been interested in. Um, I, I've had a sense my whole life of of especially this region of the of the Midwest is having a kind of hidden history um, that uh, that that i've kind of been lucky to come upon a career where i can try to investigate and and bring out um stories that i feel are important about this region that have been ignored or that that um you know uh, don't don't make it to our consciousness of what counts as um you know exciting american history in part because of the just you know this is not a particularly interesting comment but just this sort of uh, reputation of the Midwest as being, um, you know, sort of forgettable or or boring or flat or homogenous or or whatever. And I and um, yeah, just growing up, I I was I was very interested, in, I, I can remember early on and just just place names. Where'd that come from? Like, why? You know, who for whom is that named? Right. And I, I guess I'm talking specifically now about indigenous words that are all over the map, uh, of the Midwest of the great lakes. And yeah, so that's, that's how I became, you know, interested in history broadly is just, I'm interested in the place where I'm from. I have storytellers in my family. Uh, my grandmothers, both, uh, in particular were, were great sort of, uh, I'd say legendary storytellers, um, as I was coming up. And then I, you know, and then I also had teachers, uh, from an early age, I was lucky to have some some history teachers in particular who excited me about, you know, history as detective work. Um, I know that's kind of a cliche, but but I I kind of learned early on that there was a kind of creative aspect of what history was all about. Um, that that it was something that you do, uh, not just something that you passively kind of learn or or certainly memorize. Um, you know, so I feel, I feel pretty lucky that that's, that's my job now is to try to pass on that, that insight to my students, um, and try to get them excited about that creative work. But that, you know, that's, that's how my background kind of connects to, um, what I'm doing is just a a sense of, um, where I'm from is full of, of interesting stories. Um, and, uh, Uh, and so I and I especially I lit upon these last many years stories of place and and power that I that I want to kind of bring to a wider attention
1: you know I ask a lot of people uh some some question along those lines and that that's a that's a pretty frequent answer is people get interested in history by wondering about the place that they find themselves looking around them as a young person saying why is this place like this and Hearing you to say that about the midwest it kind of makes me realize that more people i feel like are asking that in a historical sense about the midwest i feel like there's been a lot of good interesting work done about the midwest in the last couple years i'm thinking about um people like kristen Hoganson, for instance who i had i had her on to talk about her book the heartland a couple years ago for instance and i feel like the, the midwest is sort of at this cutting edge of people asking about this sort of place
0: yeah well kristen uh Uh, she's in the office next door to me. I'm super lucky to, to work with her. And I've learned a ton from, from Kristen uh, about, about the Midwest. And, and we share a lot uh, of interests in common. And, and, you know, a lot of, a lot of it uh, for both of us recently has come down to sort of the, the environment. I mean, she's written so beautifully about you know about agriculture and its global dimensions um in the 19th century you know that's not something that that many you know that's certainly not the the grand narrative of midwestern agriculture is 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 as she points out it's like well it's it's this is the quintessentially local place right this is a place that is um it you know kind of even insular right in, in mythology or kind of in a sort of romantic, uh, trope, but, but, um, you know, she, she does such beautiful work to call to attention, call our attention to the global dimensions of Midwestern history. It's always been right. This very, uh, networked part of, of North America in the period of, of, uh, settler agriculture and, um, So yeah so she's doing really exciting work um and you know i think all of us doing work on this region are 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 pretty grateful to uh you know kind of some even some institutionalization of this conversation especially by a guy called john locke who has written a number of really interesting books about midwestern um regionalism right um you know you think about american historiography uh there, there is this long traditional uh, tradition of, of kind of regional conversations around the U.S. South and, you know, the burden of Southern history, of course, the American West. Stephen, I don't have to tell you this, but, but um, and many of the listeners of this podcast, that there's this great tradition of historical interpretation around the distinctiveness of the American West. Um, you know, I, I feel like I'm part of that conversation as well with with my work that's how I was trained as kind of a as a westerner so to speak but um it has been interesting to to watch the conversation around um midwestern regionalism take some shape um and uh you know what is it what is it about uh this region um, as opposed to, yeah, like if the South is carrying the burden of Southern history and the American West is living with the legacy of conquest, um, you know, quoting there C. Van Woodward and, and, uh, legacy of conquest, of course, Patricia Limerick, like, what is it about the, the Midwest? What is, what's the, what's the kind of historical trope, uh, that, that brings together the history of this, this region, um, you know if i'm a, if if i'm a part of that conversation i i think the contribution is to, to to bring that story further back into the past i mean um like the runway of midwestern distinctiveness uh is is longer than sometimes we recognize uh, in in this conversation that's that's been going on now for for the past 20 years or so
1: and even even here today, you know, I'm we're having this discussion on the American West podcast channel, right? So maybe I got to start a spinoff podcast about uh, new books in, in the history of the Midwest, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so I'm curious, too, you know, you're talking about how environmental history has been one of the great inroads into Midwestern history. And we can define terms like ecotone and stuff a little bit later, but I'm curious what brought you to the specific topic of this book. What made you want to write about the tall grass prairie and about the, 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 kind of forests of, of the, the 18th and 17th century Midwest and the environment of this region specifically.
0: Yeah. Well, I've reflected a lot of, about, you know, I, I get asked that quite a lot and, and there, part of it is the general answer that, that um, I gave you to, to your first question is about, you know, what brought me to history, you know, in a bigger sense, because, because um, you know, the the This book is, has kind of, um, been brewing for a really long time. I've been learning this, this topic for ever since I, in a serious way, started learning about history. And I've always been interested in the indigenous history of, of the Midwest in particular. Um, and then, and then the environmental dimension of things, uh, has become a specific focus My, i'm lucky to teach environmental history at u of i i teach that class uh, just about every year um and uh you know a lot of the historiography on on uh, the great works of american environmental history in particular are on either you know the west the american west landscapes pretty remote from here in terms of in terms of sort of wild or agricultural landscapes usually talking about places further West or urban landscapes. And of course we're in this agricultural, um, heartland. Uh, so, so I have been kind of on the trail of, of thinking about local environmental history, uh, in a serious way, especially for the last 12 years, since I've been teaching at U of I and trying to develop units, um, of my courses that bring the lessons, um, you know, uh, we're just trying to impart like, oh yeah, what is this thing of environmental history? How does it change our understanding of the past to to put non-human nature at the center of our of our story? Um, and of course, the converse of that, how does it change our understanding of environmental issues, including local environmental issues, if we if we look at them historically? So Anyway, I, I you know local case studies um, have been a big part of my my teaching practice for, for a long time. I've got a kind of a big one on agricultural drainage, um, which I may say more about over the course of this conversation because it's be- become a big theme for for me to 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 learn about, and I'm and I'm learning more about it even as we speak. But then uh, I've been reflecting on like the 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 genesis of this topic. Uh, very specifically, and where this book came from. And I have to say, it probably came more than anything else uh, from running. From I, I've been a distance runner, um, not a particularly good one <laughs> at all, um, but but it's been one of my hobbies for a long time. I, I, I went to college in Minnesota, was, went to a small college, Carlton College, and was on a cross-country running team there. And, you know, you have the opportunity uh, to uh, which, which became a great love of mine, um, ever since to, to run across this landscape, um, miles and miles. And, you know, I think the landscape of the Midwest, the agricultural landscape, it's impenetrable to many. It's a mystery to many. I mean, it's famously flat, it's monocultural, it's monotonous, um, it's plain, uh, it it, it it can be kind of oppressive you know um when when it's not uh really beautiful and and sublime i mean uh but anyway it was a mystery to me too and i it was probably out you know exploring um and just kind of just watching the miles go by on these long runs, where I started thinking about, well, okay, so what about the history of this landscape? What what is this landscape all about? How did it come to be like this, and what has it been before? Um, and of course, living here in Central Illinois, and um, you know, it, it, it we're in this we're in this industrial farming. Um, epicenter and it's just incredible it's just such an amazing amazing landscape to live in um and uh you know the histories that it that that are that are here and 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 that have been kind of concealed and erased and um and that 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 are not really at the top of consciousness even for people who have spent their whole lives here um you know i have i have a great appreciation for that i'm you know i'm kind of lucky as my day job is to go and to think about this so 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 you know like i i kind of wanted to i kind of wanted to to write about that uh in a serious way and um and kind of trace a story uh about about colonialism in this place and about um uh the 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 period before pre-modernity in this place before settler agriculture in this place, when it was a completely different landscape. And of course, full of people whose histories, um, you know, have, have been, you know, passively forgotten, but also sometimes actively erased from, from the land. Right. And so, so that, that it just became kind of a, um, uh, a really fun mission, um, but yet, yeah, it probably does come back to those miles. I I can remember specific moments on, on you know, in my humble way, running across the landscape and thinking, you know what, this is this is a history book. I, I got to write this book.
1: Well, before we get into the story that you tell about this place and about this landscape in in the book, I got one kind of final historiographical question that that I want to 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 get into a little bit. I'm wondering if you can explain the concept of vast early America. It's one of the sort of historiographical uh, 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 trends or themes that you are engaging with in the book. And to, to me, it's a really fascinating one. So can you explain that concept a bit and how your book and how the history that you tell, how it fits into that concept?
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, so um, I, I think this coinage comes from Karen Wolf, uh, if I'm not mistaken, who uh, was the director of the Omohundra Institute um, which is our big research center for early American historians, academic historians. And it's really a wonderful, uh, it's just a wonderful institution that brings together scholars uh, who, who work on, on this period. And I, I think uh, the, the concept of vast in early America simply, you know, acknowledged and acknowledges, um, you know, what a lot of historians have been doing for a, 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 couple of generations at least um in this in this field or in these fields that that kind of have coalesced uh, coalesced around that concept and that's simply decentering the idea of early america as as just the precursor of the united states right decentering um national you know uh historical trajectories in our in our consideration of what what makes you know what makes certain subjects in early american history relevant right i mean of course the trajectory of the coming of the united states is an important trajectory um in the periods you know from let's say 1492 to to the 18th century through the 18th century but there are so many others right and if we decenter the trajectory of of the united states and consider others. It turns out there are many, you know, places and people and histories that that fit much better in other contexts, and and for whom like their stories suddenly become relevant for very different reasons. Um, you know, so famously, one of uh, you know, a couple generations ago, people started doing a similar a move like that around the Atlantic world and thinking about early American history as part of a much larger, right, not um, context of of encounter, of the growth of early capitalism, of um, the birth of racial slavery and and the plantation and all these other themes. And, of course, empire, uh, the contest of empires over um, the territories of the Americas and, you know, the Caribbean and et cetera, that's where i kind of first came into um uh my historical career because my first book was about about empire and i'd studied these french colonists in the mid mississippi valley who again like they didn't they don't really belong if if the if the story of early america is simply precursor to the united states right yeah it makes yeah we understand why you why you you study boston or 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 virginia or um, you know the the Carolina, the British colonies but but these people didn't make sense really in in that framework. They're kind of irrelevant, but with that decentering that the Atlantic world gave us, suddenly they they kind of, you know, the Atlantic world framework gave us that suddenly they became really relevant with in much different kinds of stories like um, yeah, again, Empire or, or that story about racial slavery or you know most interesting to me the encounters among diverse people in in this process of early american history right when europeans and africans and indigenous people um showed up and started uh interacting um you know on these in these different in these different contexts so anyway that, that was the Atlantic world paradigm. And now I feel like the vast early America, vast early America paradigm is giving us even a broader stage, right. Um, for considering early American stories, um, and, um, you know, their relevance. And, you know, for me anymore, I think what I think kind of unites a lot of these stories is a, is a critical examination and a new examination of, of colonialism. Right. Um, and and its legacies, how colonialism worked, w- what it did, you know, what we inherit from that, um, from from those histories, uh, which you know are still ongoing, of course, but which have in some cases their really important roots um, in in this era. And again, this is where here history is, I think so so relevant i mean colonialism um is is general right and it's even generic right um like it happened in many times and in many places uh so this book people of the Ecotone, like i think a lot of these studies in vast early america um you know what it's trying to do is look at uh, how colonialism happened in this very specific place, right? In this very specific context, um, to take that generic concept of colonialism and, 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 uh, and understand how it unfolded here in, in, in the Tallgrass Prairie region. And it turns out that place uh, is a real, is a main actor in this story.
1: Well, with that said, then, let's talk about this place a little bit. Because as you're just saying, place is so much what this book is about. So let's get into, into the, the, the dirt, into the soil of the tall grass prairie a bit. Yeah. Can you describe the region that we're talking about, Illinois, before it was Illinois? And this might be a good place for us to define a term a bit, too. So what is this place? Uh, what makes it distinct? And what makes it an ecotome, exactly?
0: Yeah, well, okay, so the this... Uh, this book is is based on a really pretty simplistic observation, which is that excuse me, before it became um, the monocultural heartland uh, that it is today, the corn belt uh, that it is today, where there are basically two species uh, covering a great percentage of the land, um, you know, here in in much of the state of Illinois, in most of Iowa, in you know, so many of the, uh, of the, of the states around here, um, before it became this monocultural heartland, this place was extremely diverse. And the reason it was diverse is because it is on a continental scale. It's one of the most important transition zones, uh, in North America. It's the transition zone between the, broadly speaking, the woodlands, right the temperate forests of the east and the the great lakes in particular uh on the on the one side and on the other side the grasslands of the west right so broadly speaking you know the corn belt is this divider um you know what became the corn belt is the divider and at the heart of that division um uh, between the woodlands and the grasslands is this special ecology, which is the tall grass prairie. So that's a kind of a, um, you know, if you've got the short grass, arid west, west grasslands of the west, um, it's not like that. You know, the tall grass prairie, it's, it, it, it's uh, you know, most of it is is vanished, especially in the state of Illinois. I think there's just a, you know, less than a, a single percentage of the land uh, that was once under tall grass prairie it it remains in that um under that land cover but it's uh it's a special ecology and um it's uh so for the purposes of this book uh that you know that division uh turns out to have a really important um kind of role in in history um and uh Yeah. So, I mean, and technically speaking, ecotone refers to um, these dividing places. Uh, Ecologists use that term to talk about, you know, transitions between one kind of, uh, you know, uh, plant assemblage and another. So between forests and wetlands, for instance, or between grasslands and forests, Uh, this happens to be one of the largest, (laughs) um, you know, biome scale, biome scale transitions on the continent. And so what I wanted to do was to um, uh, explore what that had to do with human history. Uh, and it turns out, you know, as, as I try to describe in this book and I try to narrate in this book, it has a lot to do with how, um, you know, kind of indigenous cultures uh, use the land and sort of, uh, um, um, you know, fit into the, it fit into the land, created the land. Certain kinds of ecologies in an active way, um, almost in that sense, uh, cultivated the land uh, on, a, on a large scale. Um, and then it has a lot to do with how colonialism uh, interacted with those cultures and, and, and this place.
1: So one thing that environmental historians have really sort of uh, uh, landed upon as as a group of, of scholars in in the past, you know, a couple of generations of scholarship is that environments are defined by dynamism. They're defined by change. I remember when I was coming up in grad school, my advisor had me read a whole bunch of work on things like chaos theory, for instance, to get me to stop thinking about environments as seeking some kind of stability, some kind of climax, and ecotones are great places to study this kind of environmental dynamism Uh, they're places that are constantly shifting and changing and one of the most important changes for the history of the region that you're talking about in this book of this particular ecotone uh is not a human change at all but is is a non-human change and so this might be a good place for us to bring in the bison into this story can you talk a bit about the history of the bison and particularly their role in this uh, uh in this specific environment in this place
0: yeah, well, this so this became. The, I mean, this is a real um, important part of the story of how I came to write this book. is is to to understand um, a kind of critical change that happened. Um, you know, it, it's not independent of people because it turns out that people do have a role in 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 this change, um, but but definitely a change in the natural environment of the Midwest that um, that starts. there's a long and sort of, and, and kind of like fuzzy runway to this, to this set of changes. So I don't really, it's, it's hard to to pinpoint a starting point, but, but there are climate changes in what we might call the medieval period of North America. So, um, you know, right around 1080 or, or common era. Um, And at first, there's this medieval warm period, a, a, a period of, of uh, as the name suggests, kind of higher temperatures and, and a lot of moisture. And that affects the West in particular by, uh, that is the American West and the grasslands of the West, by just like creating a great boom of of production, right? In those ecosystems. And along with that is a rise in the population, maybe to its highest ever extent in the great grazers of the american grasslands bison right um and so between a thousand 1200 1300 or so we get this great boom um in bison populations which kind of continues in the next climate change um which is the onset of the so-called little ice age uh When temperatures actually, uh, especially on the east coast of North America, get really cold. Um, In Europe, there's a great uh, spell of cold weather. In the west, the way that the Little Ice Age manifests is in drought. And so you have this big proliferation of bison uh, out west. And as the grasslands of the far west start to, you know, decline because of that drought, You know, episode. This is over. This is over decades and even centuries of time. Bison are pushed further and further to the east into these very humid grasslands, which are the tall grass prairies. Right? Uh, Actually, kind of marginal grasslands for grazers like bison. For um, in the best of circumstances, but now this is not the best of circumstances. Some bison are moving east to you know, escape these drought conditions. And so for the first time, or I shouldn't probably say it like that, but, but it's, it is a novel moment, um, uh, around, right around the same time as Europeans are showing up in North America, let's say 1500. Some of these herds of bison are moving as far East as they maybe ever went. Um, now there are bison don't don't get me wrong about this there are bison all over north america you know i think every in every state besides delaware poor delaware i guess is is the only state uh east of the mississippi that where archaeologists have not found remains of bison um there are bison all over the place but there's they tend to be small um you know even loners um you know one or two not not huge herds, but the but what makes this moment in the fifteen hundreds distinctive is that there are herds of bison, hundreds, maybe even thousands, uh, in a in a single herd moving, you know, again across the Mississippi River and into this this landscape uh, of the tall grass prairie, where they are met by people who are very happy to uh, try to make that landscape as hospitable for them as they can. Which they do by burning it, by cultivating it, um, you know, so to speak. It's really a form of uh, of a, of a kind of animal husbandry, as they uh, try to maximize, probably try to maximize the amount uh, of of uh, you know suitable grazing land that they that they could for these bison herds, um, because it is such an opportunity to have these animal partners here in this grassland. Uh, so that is a, that's an event. That's a historical event, you know, again, and it happens at this interesting moment, um, in human history, uh, the, the city state, um, or chiefdom of Cahokia, which is a assemblage of maybe 20 to 30,000 people living in the mid Mississippi Valley, um, from about, a thousand A.D. through twelve fifty, when when that city state kind of empties out, um, in the wake of that, uh, and at a time when maybe agriculture is a little bit harder, it's you know a little bit less secure um, because of the droughty conditions, bison are a huge opportunity for these uh, prairie inhabitants. Some of whom are coming, actually moving to the east, moving from the east to the west, out of the Great Lakes. And those are the people that are the protagonists of my story. Many of those people who are, you know, Algonquian speakers, um, we can probably call them proto algon you know, proto-Illinois speakers, uh, the ancestors uh, of the um, Illinois speakers um, and the Meskwaki and some other Algonquian tribes. They move into places like the Illinois River Valley, uh, the Wabash River Valley, from from the east, right as this Bison Opportunity is is taking off, and that that's kind of a that is a major moment that I tried to write about, uh, you know, kind of as a as a shift as a rupture uh, in the history of this region.
1: And so much of this book is, is, is about the relationship between these people and not just this place, but, but, but bison in particular. And I think my favorite chapter of the book was the one where you talk a lot about, um, non-equestrian bison hunting. I feel like for a lot of people, even historians, when they imagine bison hunting native societies, they imagine people on horseback, right? Kind of post- late 17th century, uh, uh, equestrian nomads. And you talk a lot about people that hunted bison on foot, uh, that, that ran after bison, kind of relating to the kind of inroad that you made into this story about your own running across these prairies. So can you explain a bit the relationship between the people of the prairie of the, the region that they had with this place and with the bison in particular and, and their hunting and, and bison processing practices generally? Well, yeah, I mean, so, so this rupture,
0: the arrival of bison and the arrival of, of these um, groups like the, the Illinois and the Meskwaki uh, it, it, in this moment, I mean, it does create this, this great, uh, let's say opportunity um, for, for a new kind of economy uh, at, at a time when, when it was pretty valuable to be able to exploit these grasslands um, in, a, in a new way. But again, as you point out, this is a little different from the kind of bison culture that we often have in our imaginations um, because there, it is not equestrian bison hunting, but rather hunting on foot. And not only that, if we do have an image of uh, of what pedestrian bison hunting was all about, uh, uh, typically what we envision is this practice, which was common, you know, places like Montana and other places uh in the in the period you know before and alongside of equestrian bison hunting where uh teams of runners would corral bison um to a particular geographical feature usually involving a cliff right or a jump or a trap where the animals would be chased you know in some cases even over a cliff uh and 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 then they could be um pretty easily uh killed if they didn't die in, in, in falling off that cliff of course in central illinois if you've ever been here we don't have any cliffs and um uh quite the contrary this is the one of the flattest <laughs> landscapes in all of north america thanks to uh the glaciation of um you know 2.5 million years ago down to uh more recently you know, i think the end of the last glaciers is eleven thousand years ago or so um, you know, so it's super flat landscape, no opportunity to chase the animals off of a, of, of a cliff or a jump. So it's a very different and distinctive kind of bison hunting that takes shape here. Um, and you know, I, Europeans who showed up in the late 1600s were understandably really fascinated by this. Um, so they wrote a lot of accounts of how Indians did it, um, and they did it through uh large groups they did it through cooperation they did it through uh you know a a great deal of of coordination and kind of know-how um but also a ton of running like you started way back uh you know in in teams coordinated teams and you know began to walk uh, so that the animals on you know you have a group on either flank of a, of a herd of let's say a few hundred animals and you'd want you know you don't want to chase them away to a place where if they the bison will run they'll 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 skedaddle so you got to be very careful and you so they were they were very masterful at how um, they were able to kind of coordinate together and of course move across the land uh, quickly and and strategically to get them to a place and this is also very important where the animals, I mean, once you kill them, like it's going to be tough to move them, right? So because a bison bull is 2,000 pounds, if not more. Uh, so if you kill it out in the middle of nowhere, um, it's kind of useless, right? You got to get it to a place where it's actually going to be to be useful. And then you can exploit the all the calories that that animal represents and all the other things that it represents in terms of material for technology and, and et cetera. But again, just think about the know-how that goes into that, right? Uh, and the embodied physical and you know, biophysical relationships that people have with with the not just the animal, but the process of exploiting the animal, right? And that, in this book, I tried to describe and I tried to imagine, because of course a lot of it has to be a little bit speculative, but just just how much... How many imperatives that created, and how much that shaped how people, how people lived, down to, uh, you know, things that we would oftentimes think of as as very much cultural, right? Um, you know, uh, relationships between families, relationships within families, um, and other features of culture that that probably were strongly strongly shaped. I, I don't want to say determined, but strongly shaped by the by the requirements of of this economy. And um, you know, and, 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 and then then it continues from there. I mean, there's there is killing the animals, there is the actual hunt. But then from there come other requirements and imperatives and, um, you know, kind of uh, ways in which working with bison, living with bison, utilizing bison also shapes aspects of life and this becomes especially true as um as the people entered a, a you know proto-capitalist market in the first uh part of the bison to be commodified in this period is the hide
1: so let's zoom out a little bit and take uh take a regional look by the time we get to the kind of mid to late 17th century you have new people that are arriving from the east pushing west into the center of north america and and historians um have often described changes like this as, as really being driven by colonialism right by europeans and by violence induced by settler colonialism kind of on the east coast pushing westward but you try to tell the story from a different perspective you tell the story a little bit differently so how were the people of the of the ecotone, how were they important historical actors themselves during this era in the 17th century of the beaver trade and the kind of height of of, of European colonialism in, in the 17th century?
0: Well, so so as I said, first of all, they they they're moving out um, and, and kind of occupying and taking control of this of this region. Um, you know for reasons at first that have nothing to do at all probably with colonialism but 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 rather with the the kind of you know opportunity and and um and and just uh i think that the the offerings the 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 possibilities of this lifeway um so even before colonialism gets going uh, in any way, and of course, even even as it gets going, it's really important to remember that for the mid-continent uh, in the 17th and 18th century, what colonialism looks like oftentimes is just a, a few, a, a very few people, right? I mean, this is not settler colonialism in that in that um, kind of mode that takes place out in um, on the East Coast. So we're talking about uh sojourners traders missionaries um this remains very much an indigenous world driven by indigenous logics and um you know it it, and so we you asked earlier about the the nature of the ecotone as a um as a biological reality the division between the um woodlands and the grasslands that maps on Interestingly, uh, to and probably not surprisingly, to kind of some cultural transitions as well in Native North America in this period. That is, uh, you know, kind of woodlands people of the Great Lakes, uh, many of whom were speakers of Iroquoian and Algonquian languages, were broadly different, broadly distinguished from uh, cultures of the West of the grasslands, who many of whom spoke Siouan and Caddoan languages. And, um, you know, one thing that made this landscape special in addition to the kind of ecological affordances of bison hunting is that it was this important kind of cultural uh, borderland as well. So moving here, um, it it created opportunities for the people that, that I write about, like the Illinois and the Meskwaki, Beyond just the ecological ones, and and extending to sort of we could even say like strategic, um, uh, kind of political, maybe um, kinds of advantages and opportunities. That's because those cultural divisions, the divisions or separations between the Algonquian and the Iroquoian speakers of the woodlands and the and those of the grasslands that the people, th- those divisions had kind of, well, I mean, to be very uh, blunt about it, there were, there were very few kind of kinship connections across this uh, transition zone, uh, which turned out to have important implications for one of the things that underlay um, a lot of kind of military strategy inside of uh, these native nations and cultures at this time uh, that involves um, a, a kind of imperative of warfare uh, around kinship replacement so like when you when you lost a family member in battle um, it, it, oftentimes there was an imperative or at least an incentive a, a kind of motivation to to try to bring somebody else in in replacement uh, of that of that loss and um, Inside of the Great Lakes world, that was difficult to do because kinship uh, networks were very strong um, among the peoples of the Great Lakes, but out in the West were people, um, you know, speaking different languages, belonging to very different kinship lineages who could uh, supply that, um, that need, that imperative. And people in the ecotone region for you know reasons occasioned of course and then certainly exacerbated by colonialism but but not really initially created by colonialism they became sort of specialists in this process of of uh, of supplying some of these captives to the great lakes world um and you can kind of imagine that I try to write in in detail in this book about how that accelerated a certain kind of um, a certain kind of violence uh, in in the region um, that again it, it's absolutely tied to colonialism but it has its own kind of indigenous logic to it as as well so um, anyway it all gets going with these these migrations to the west by some of these Algonquians, their adoption of bison hunting, um, and then their kind of the stand that they make inside of this transition zone that contains these particular strategic opportunities.
1: Well, and then that's the, the next question that I wanted to, to ask is this sort of uptick in violence that occurs as a result, because by the time you get to the early 18th century, which is about when when you kind of wrap up the story that you're telling, the prairies at the center of North America are becoming an increasingly violent place. And once again, you have environmental factors, especially animals like bison, but also, also beaver as well, that are really at the center of the story of why this is happening. So how did... Animals and how are environmental changes? How are they also driving warfare and violence in this area, in this place? Well, one thing, one thing that
0: that I learned in writing this book that I, that I I sort of knew, but uh, it it became um, much more clearly important in my understanding of history, uh, um, and 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 what happened in the colonial era in the Midwest. Um, One fact is that explorers from France, including very famously Robert LaSalle, who is, of course, the uh, explorer who went down in the 1670s and 1680s, went down the Mississippi River for for the first time, um, uh, and, you know, was a real ambitious uh, kind of enterprising uh, colonist uh, who wanted to try to exploit and 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 make a fortune in trade in north america and what he had his eye on during a period when everybody was going gaga about the beaver trade right because beaver became the biggest fur you know the biggest commodity uh for canada for um much of the 17th century uh and indigenous people um you know hunted and and traded that commodity to Europeans, and that became a real engine of history. Um, but LaSalle had his eye not on beaver, but on bison. And he thought that bison would soon eclipse uh, the value of the the entire beaver trade, uh, particularly because of their hides. He thought that their hides were uh, potentially super valuable for some specific market, market needs in France pr- related to the military. And he was sure that if he could get a monopoly on on bison skins, then he could he could make a fortune, and so he did. And he, he got that monopoly initially. Uh, then he died, but some others took over, um, and they set up uh, what was the uh, the the kind of like realization of their dream. They set up uh, a tannery where they hoped that um, they could, you know, like these are massive hides of course bison hides so you don't you don't want to send them home in rawhide you want to get them as finished as you can so put a tannery in the middle of the uh of the region where the bison are plentiful and you can you can kind of uh make a good business that way so so some traders started started to do that uh of course to make a european style tannery out in the middle of north america at that time was really not realistic so what they were really relying on was indigenous labor to um to produce these hides and that that turns out to be a really important part of the story because in all of the bison economy and as fascinating as it was from the the running and the hunting and all the know-how and the and the um the the, you know the fascinating kind of community dynamics and the division of labor the bottleneck of it all was in processing the leather um, because it was super labor intensive the technique was brain tanning um, and that involved, you know I I write about it in the book I won't go into it now but but a a, you know it's a lot of work I mean it's work ultimately it comes down to labor Um, and so to the question about uh, the relationship between, you know, Indians um, kind of ambitiously entered this marketplace uh, that was set up initially by LaSalle and his, and his successors. Um, and they supplied lots and lots of, of these these hides. But to do that, they needed to also rely on, you know, sources of labor that and, and solutions to a kind of labor problem. Which I describe in the book, um, and that in turn that in turn produces or exacerbates um, some 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 patterns of violence that you you know you see all over uh, the Great Lakes and and North America at this period. You know, I mean, the introduction of guns, the introduction of European disease, uh, the introduction of of like competition among people trying to get access to these marketplaces those things did what they did but then the bison economy itself and the the specific requirements labor requirements um of producing bison interacted with right all of those other factors in a really kind of specific way that that escalated that violence um you know and again so 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 like you really can't understand why disease and why guns and why those other factors, right, were so consequential and destructive inside of these these villages, unless you also understand that they were producing bison hides and particularly that you know relying on, um, you know, as much labor as they could get, right to to um, to to produce. Uh, additional hides um, the best way to get that labor it turns out we're, we're in these violent raids these raids to the west um, and uh, again they were perfectly positioned for this inside of the ecotome this kind of cultural borderland um, so it really is a kind of on the one hand a rise to power and on the other hand you can kind of see it spiraling pretty quickly into ever greater violence
1: so you end this story in the, the kind of middle decades of the eighteenth century. So I'm curious why you chose to wrap the story up there, and then what comes next? I mean there's centuries of history, of course, still to come after after this book comes to a close, and we, you know, don't have time to, to go over everything that happens, of course, but uh, 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 how does this story that you tell end and then what happens afterwards? How does the ecotone change uh, uh, even more so from this very diverse and dynamic landscape into one that's defined so much today by its sameness and by its kind of uh, ecological monoculture? Yeah. Well, the, the,
0: the, the, the story that I told uh, in this book ends kind of in the mid 18th century, in part because um, I, I, I kind of, uh, I structured the book around, you know, trying to explain what, what were these really consequential, but sometimes hard to understand uh, indigenous conflicts of this period, um, which the French called the Fox Wars. Uh, excuse me. And um, and they had a, a climactic moment in the 1730s, um, excuse me, not far from here, uh, that, that, again, I kind of used this, this narrative of like, you know, how the, the bison economy is interacting with the introduction of disease and the introduction of, of guns and, and the, you know, arrival of a, of a capitalist market or proto capitalist market and how this kind of intensifies these, 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 um these raids and et cetera, how all of that kind of plays into the coming of the Fox Wars. That's the story I tried to tell um, in this book. And it kind of, it, 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 it comes to this kind of natural climax in the 1730s uh this story doesn't of course it doesn't end except insofar as you know in terms of the bison economy and uh, and um you know I said earlier that LaSalle was convinced that this was going to be a, a major commodity well it it didn't pan out right and it didn't um it didn't work the way he said it would uh and bison really um didn't sort of remain such a, uh, a glimmer in the eye of the Europeans, of course, it came back like the bison economy of the 19th century is also super consequential in American history. Um, but that's, you know, major, uh, use of bison leather at that time, of course, is in like belts for, uh, for, for factories, um, for industrial equipment. Um, it's a totally different trade, uh, and so, but but by the mid 18th century, the French have kind of lost some interest in bison. And if they still have interest in the bison trade, they're not thinking about they're not thinking about the mid Mississippi Valley anymore because they know that the the larger concentration of bison, of course, is much further west uh, as they get out, you know, into the Missouri River and um, you know some of the short grass. Plains environment where the bison herds are not 100, 200, 300 animals, but, you know, thousands and thousands of animals, um, that's where that opportunity is, and they know that. So the Illinois, the Meskwaki, they're kind of left in the lurch. They're kind of, And that's, I, I think that's one of the interesting uh, parts of the uh, rise and fall story that's involved here is that, you know, they made a lot of choices for these opportunities, but then the opportunity um, kind of quickly disappeared. Um so that kind of explains the the trajectory of the book. I mean, the question of what happens next. I mean, interestingly, um uh the Midwest remains a, a kind of animal ecology for a longer time than we usually think. Um you know, I I live in Champaign, the oldest building in Champaign, uh I believe this is true, is is now the location of our our um champaign county historical society and it's it's famously got this picture and I, I have this recreated in the book there's a picture of it in the book uh family got famously got a sign on it that says cattle bank and that's important i mean that that first of all the building looks like it ought to be out in texas and nebraska or something cattle bank what's that doing here shouldn't it be corn bank um but the answer to that question is like no in the 19th century it was hard to grow corn here. In fact, it was it was prohibitive to grow corn here. And many people who, many settler agriculturalists who, who, who arrived here first were ranchers and not doing row crops. That didn't come later, or that didn't come until later when um, they did the massive landscape engineering project that made row crop agriculture possible in this region, which is drainage. They had to drain out the land. Um, and until then, this remained Kind of cattle economy, you know, cattle land uh, in in large measure. Um, so there is actually some interesting continuity that I discovered, you know, between like okay, well, if we can't intensively farm up on the high, uh, up on the upland prairie um, until it gets plowed and until it gets drained, um, then then you know the best way to exploit that energy source is just the same way that. That the Illinois and the Meskwaki were doing before, which is, you know, basically ranging animals up there and and exploiting them, um, uh, rather than row crops. So there is some interesting continuity, um, but you know, in terms of sort of what comes next, uh, you know, the end of the 18th century. By that time, the Indians had lost a lot of power um, out of this out of these cycles of violence and. The destruction that was brought by the Fox Wars, and so, you know, that that's another, um, you know, that is a discontinuity for sure because settler colonialism begins in the mid 18th century, and more French people, and eventually, you know, British and American people show up, and and the shift is is pretty quick um, to uh, settler hegemony here, um, and the the period of Indian power. I mean, particularly this great center of power that the place was, that gets eclipsed pretty quick.
1: So as we begin to wrap up here, uh, there's a question that I always like to, to present to my guests as sort of a, a summary type question. And so I'm going to ask you to put yourself in the shoes of someone who has read your book and is thinking back to is remembering this book, say, a year on from now or five years on from now. What would you hope that person remembers or takes away from this book a few years on down the line?
0: Well, I really, I really hope, I mean, I, you know, without sounding simplistic, I really hope that this is a, that this book convinces the reader that this was a really important place, important location in early America that, that, um, you know, there were some really uh, consequential things going on here. Um, and, uh, and, and, secondly the reason why those really consequential things were happening here is because of what was here right that this was the the place itself now it wasn't just a setting for important history it it's you know it's one of the very consequential very uh distinctive environments of or, or of early america um and so i hope the takeaway is is you know, simply to kind of remember what makes this place distinctive and to to then understand a a story of, uh, of why it was important.
1: I think this book serves as a a good way for understanding how all places are distinctive. And like you said, that also sounds very simplistic, but you know, if you can weave this kind of, of rich and nuanced story out of a place that most people refer to disparagingly as like flyover country, right. Then what other stories are we missing about places as well? That's right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, and, and also again, to that point that I was trying to make earlier about colonialism, like, you know, there are lots of, (laughs) we, there's a way in which we can think about a category like colonialism in very general terms very generic terms and think about like uh you know this is what it this is what it is but but on the ground in, spe- in a specific location you see how it actually unfolded and here it unfolded uh in relationship between you know it, in very complicated chains of causation between you know, like these non-human geographical features, non-human animal actors, the requirements of their, you know, their metabolism, right? Fire that served those, uh, the, the ecology on which they depended, you know, the cultural, uh, you know, patterns that, that hunting bison incentivized i guess and then how that interacted in turn with say something like a disease epidemic because people were living in large villages all to say right i mean it's like the general of colonialism now becomes extremely specific in um you know in this in this in this setting
1: and then to close us out here, Bob, uh, I always like to get a preview when I can of what my guests are working on next. Historians always have a few different plates spinning at any one time. And I know this book has not been out for very long, but I'm curious if you have any other projects or any other uh, uh, next books that you've been working on. Uh, what have you been working on in the meantime?
0: Yeah, thanks. No, I, 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 I kind of... Uh... Uh, foreshadowed it a little bit or, or, or revealed a little bit. I'm, I'm, I'm currently working on a a teaching project that I don't know if it's going to turn into a research project or writing project, but I'm really excited to learn more about this um, this environmental history of, of landscape uh, engineering and especially wetlands drainage in, in our region. I think it is one of the most consequential chapters of landscape change in North America. Of course, it's connected with, a lot of issues, um, that we're pretty aware of like, uh, you know, uh, pollution of the Gulf of Mexico that comes a lot, uh, in large measure from, um, ag chem- chemicals upstream in states like Illinois and Iowa and et cetera. And, um, you know, I think that's a hidden history too. I mean, it's very, almost literally hidden because the infrastructure that accomplished wetlands drainage around here is literally buried in the ground. Um, but I think it's a it's every bit as consequential a chapter of environmental history as as more kind of famous episodes of land reclamation in the West with irrigation and dam building and all that kind of stuff. So I, I'm looking down that particular rabbit hole at the moment, um,
1: and we'll see where that goes. Dr. Robert Morrissey is professor of history at the University of Illinois, and his new book is People of the Ecoto, Environment and Indigenous Power at the Center of Early America, which came out with the University of Washington Press in 2022, and this past October in 2023, won the Hal Rothman Prize from the Western History Association. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your work with me today, Bob. Yeah, thanks so much, Stephen. Appreciate it.